Welcome to the Relentless Gardener podcast. Good day, everyone. I am Colorado State University horticultural agent, Linda Langelo, and joining me today is Susan Carter, area extension agent of horticultural and natural resources for the Tri-River County. Now let's get to the heart of it where we explore the horticultural topic of the Ute Learning Garden, AKA Ute Ethnobotany Garden, AKA Clifford Duncan Memorial Garden. Hello, Susan, how are you? Good, Linda, how are you doing today? Good, good, glad you could join me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And yeah, the, the garden's a mouthful, right? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> Just, always wants to know what, what's ethnobotany and, you know, who's Clifford Duncan? So we'll hopefully get into that some of that today. Yes, um, we will. Yeah. So tell the audience, let's explain ethnobotany to them before we even get into the garden. Yeah, so it's the study of how plants are used. And so we talk about a lot of history um, when we're talking about ethnobotany, but um, it certainly can be used in today's terms too. And um, I think more people have gotten into uh, ethnobotany. I've seen more ethnobotany gardens kind of popping around up around the state. So, um, but you know, can you eat a certain plant or you know plant part? Can you use it to make something? Uh, can it be used medicinally? Um, and, and of course the Ute would use things ceremonially as well. So uh, multiple ways of using plants. Ethnobotany has become more and more popular in the last few years. It has, it, it really has grown. So yeah. I'm taking a course with Alan Armitage who is in his own right at the University of Georgia, an expert in perennials. Uh-huh. And it's on sun perennials. And within that class, there are 21 classes. And uh, it's so interesting because he loves bringing up the history of each and every plant. And plants have their own stories. They do. They do. I, I always find it interesting, too, that a lot of plants, their common names are related to what people thought they did, you know, like if it, it, or if it grew a certain place, like if it, it grew uh, within a rock, then they thought it, it could, you know, break kidney stones or something to that effect. I was, I, I you know, there, there may or may not be some truth to some of that, but uh, it's always interesting how, how those names come, came about, you know, through history. Well, just as an aside, carnations were called pinks. And yes. People under 30, he always jokes about, don't know what pinking shears are, but the flower petals look like they, the outside edges were cut by pinking shears. Right. Yeah. And the pinking shears were, were used to mitigate the long threads that came off of the fabric, which would make it, you know, tear even more. So don't ask anybody under 30, but anybody over 30 would know. Yes, I, I will admit I know that. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm right, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll admit I'm over 30. <laughs> Won't admit anything else, but <laughs> that's a so, good yeah. way. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. 
so so back to the ethnobotany garden yes. um yes it, it started out of the ethnobotany project and so um the Bureau of Land Management uh, partnered with uh, the Ute and they developed this uh, ethnobotany project. And um, it's a little hard to find online, but if you do a little digging, you can you can find it. Um, but that was kind of the premise behind the garden. And so BLM, um, you, the Ure Uinta Ute tribe is, is who we work with. They're also called the Northern Ute people. Um, just to distinguish themselves from the Southern and the Ute Mountain Ute. Um, the U.S. Forest Service, uh, of course, Mesa County, because they donated the land for us to use, CSU Extension, and of course, um, our Master Gardener Program, as well as our Native Plant uh, Master Program has been involved in this garden. And um, many of the Master Gardeners are trained as docents. And so we do a training, BLM comes in, does some archaeological type training. Um, we do more training on like how to how to greet kids and keep them engaged and um, how to focus the tour for, you know, what's the teacher want out of the tour? Or what does the group want out of the tour? Um, so anyway, it's been a, a great group um, of collaborators. Um, unfortunately, with COVID, we've not seen much of the people um, we did have a local Ute Heritage Day at one of the schools this year, so I got to see them there. Um, but they were kind of hit hard with COVID. So we're hoping next year we'll see more of them in the garden. And sometimes they'll visit and, and just leave, uh, you know, tokens. I might find like a God's eye in the wiki apps or something like that. And, and I, just, I just leave them because they, they left that as a gift to the garden. And they consider coming to this garden as coming back home. Um, which I know I'm kind of jumping out of, out of order here, what we kind of discussed, but if you want me to keep going, I'll keep going. Well, that's, um, that's the, it's, it's, it's glad that you do that. That's a, quite an honor to yes. these Northern people and that's sacred to them. Land was always sacred to Native yes. Americans, period. Uh, but the, the Northern U people, are they involved in the educational process? Not typically, with the exception of that Ute Heritage Day um, that's done done at a, um, a middle school here, um, we have invited them um, to do a beading class. Um, so we're hoping next year they can they can find the time to get out here. They've been very busy. Um, the, the Ute elder that we work with um, right now, she uh, Bet Betsy covers like seven states and represents the Ute people. So she's you know, kind of spread thin. Um, and But we started with Clifford. Um, Clifford Duncan was uh, just an amazing man. He, he did just all kinds of stuff, but he was really a keeper of culture and um, an Indian historian. Um, he, you know, he was a Ute, a Northern Ute elder. Um, he would go and you know, speak to people. And so the, this garden sort of grew out of that wanting to keep the culture alive. Like how do we um, keep, because everything was spoken, you know, it's not written down, it's spoken. So this garden's a way to try to keep some of that cultural information alive. And so having all these native plants um, organized by different life zones or elevations, 
because they would move through this area seasonally. So they really consider when they come here, um, the Grand Valley's home and they, they would, you know, get out of the valley when it's hundred degrees. Uh, they would avoid the pinion juniper area when the gnats were so bad. Um, so they would, you know, seasonally move um, and follow the, the food resources and, you know, and, and based on the weather too, so. Um, so I, it just touches my heart when they come here because when they do come visit with us, um, they, they call it home. They call it, you know, coming to the Grand Valley home. Um, and of course it was the Grand River first, not, not the Colorado River, but uh, they'd like to come. They have brought some of their youth. We've actually put some of their youth uh, through a tour um, to just keep the education going with, with that generation. Just like our generation, they're on the electronics and they're not really sitting around uh, a Ramada that we have here that, and telling stories like they used to. Um, you know, so unfortunately, modern um, ways have you know impacted them too. So, well, that's kind of sad because I've worked for the Oneida Indians and they do the same thing. They're certain people that learn stories by you know telling them to each other and passing them down generation to generation so i hope nothing gets lost because there that's really a lot of wisdom over the generations yeah and unfortunately with um clifford's passing we we did probably lose some of that you know which is which is so sad um so hopefully we can continue to retain uh, some of that information. And, and we do have the other tribes. Uh, we have had the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute come visit and, and do tours. And I always learn from them too, because they'll, you know, I remember one elder telling me, he said, oh yeah, you know, prickly pear. My grandmother used to, you know, cook that and the fruit was our dessert. But then we found, you know, white man sugar and, you know, pie tastes so much better <laughs> than prickly pear. Um, and so they realize the changes, uh, you know, that that have happened. Um, but I think it's important to keep to keep that information going. That you know, prickly pear was you know kind of the the sweet dessert, the fruit that they would use. And then we also like to wind in too that believe it or not, but coyotes actually like to eat the prickly pear fruit, um, and the deer and rabbits will eat the pads, which just amazes me how they get their lips around all those thorns, but. Um, they will. And uh, one year we were teaching a native plant class here and we had a bunch of blooming cactus all picked out on the Colorado National Monument. And we get out there and every single bloom had been eaten off. <laughs> and, and we were so sad because we had yellow and apricot and pink. And we were going to talk about you know, the diversity of the species. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> the, the bunnies and the deer had eaten, eaten all the fruit, oh, the the flowers off so um yeah just you never know what's going to happen <laughs> that's that's just not nice so no in thinking historically when the youths used to like get out of the valley when it was too hot hmm. did they bring some of the plants along with them especially when they learned how to ride horseback and their travel expanded further did they right. gather more plants and, and bring them into their gardens or no? So they were hunter gatherers. Um, they were never really gardeners. However, they would, 
sometimes plant some seed, maybe move some rocks or something to direct some water um, so that hopefully they would come back and, uh, you know, there might be more of that plant there. Um, but, but they weren't traditional gardeners, but yeah, they would certainly make uh, things like pemmican um, using animal meat and fat along with dried berries. Uh, I, I call it kind of uh, the, their version of a protein bar, you know, and they would take that with them. Um, uh, the Indian rice grass, the seed of that is very large, um, has a fair amount of protein in it. Um, they would collect that in fall and that would get them through the winter. Um, they would grind that and make flour and, you know, make uh, cakes and, and different things out of that. Um, they made baskets. Um, so they would traditionally use baskets and those sort of things. Um, but certainly once the horse came along and when they had the trouble, I can never spit this word out, trouble, Triple J. I can never get that word out, but basically they would have two long poles, um, you know, with the cross beam behind the horse that they would pull, and then they could then. That's when the teepee really, or the new, what we call the nugon, came into play um, versus the wiki ups. The wiki ups are kind of just small, um, small little, you know teepee sort of shaped structures, but much smaller. I almost think of them as like a little tent, um, but they would use wood that they'd find and then they would cover it um, with boughs or branches or grasses and things like that um, to make their sleeping quarters. And once the horse came along, they were able to have bigger teepees that the women were in charge of. They would be the ones that would put it up, take it down, which just amazes me because it takes a lot of us to put up the one here. We have a pretty large one. Um, and sometimes they do come help us, which we greatly appreciate when they come in the springtime and we have a, you know, a, a new bomb uh, raising and, and put that up for the season. Um, and then they would start, they started trading too. Um, so they, they made baskets, they would line them with pine pitch and that's how they made them waterproof. Um, they would use things like um, three leaf sumac um, that was very pliable that they could make the baskets with. Um, and then that would help them carry goods. But then they would start trading and uh, for pottery and corn and things like that. And, you know, they would, they would trade, uh, you know, ghost beads or um, maybe baskets or other things that they had made or collected um, in, in, in uh, you know, trade for the corn and, and the pottery. Oftentimes, though, they won't, they wouldn't lug that pottery all over, they would stash it. Um, so sometimes you might still find like in the, in the woods, like an old, uh, you know, kind of cache of uh, pottery. And, um, you know, they, they would use that to hold water and different things, but um, they would know that that's there. When I come back next year, that'll be here. Um, so they would kind of store some things so they didn't have to haul everything all around with them. That's good to know. That's interesting. Tell yeah. Us, tell us about some of the other plants in the garden. Yeah, so as I mentioned, it's it's arranged by elevation. So we have a, a, a desert area. Um, that has yucca in it and um, desert uh, four wing. Um, and the four wing, I, I always say, I want to know who was the first one and tried this and figured this out. But um, the Navajo and I think the Hopi were the ones that were feeding their kids blue corn and they just weren't getting enough nutrition. 
and somehow they figure they figured out that if they used the seeds of the four wing saltbrush that they could use it as a culinary ash and uh, for those of you that like fancy restaurants some restaurants still will use culinary ash um, in some preparations but basically you're using that seed as a bed that you then would cook the corn in and they realized that it, it enhanced uh, the amino acids and, and some of the nutrients within the corn. Um, so it just amazes me how they figure these things out. Um, but the ute would have used um, the desert four-wing seeds uh, to, to grind and make it into a flour. Um, the yucca, they use the entire plant. Um, so when the shoot of the yucca flower is coming up, um, they would cut that and basically um, cook it like we would eat asparagus. Um, they would eat um, uh, sometimes the, the fruit of the yucca. Um, and there is a moth that lives its entire, a native moth that lives its entire life cycle in the banana yucca, in, just within the, the flower uh, portion. And it, it does the pollinating. And of course, it has a, a mutual you know, agreement with the yucca. So it you know, reproduces. Um, they would then use the leaves for fiber. And we actually, this is an activity we have some groups, if they have time, we will actually pound yucca leaves. I have enough yucca here that we can pick some and we treat it and the kids will pound, you know, rocks and, and basically you can get cordage out of it. Um, so they would use it, uh, the tip of the yucca too for like a sewing needle. And then you'd have this cordage or rope that you could make from the leaves. And then finally, the root um, actually has a compound in it that makes suds. And so they would use it as uh, soap or shampoo and also discovered at some point that um, it also kind of knocks out the fish in the water. So um, would kind of stun them. And so they could gather fish too by using the yucca. So very um, amazing how they used every single part of the yucca. And one thing they really believed about uh, the plants is you respect them. And I, I say they're kind of like the first ones to practice sustainability because they believed you picked the 10th plant. You went by nine plants before you picked the 10th. And they really believe in respecting um, the environment, knowing where your food comes from. And I know that drives Betsy crazy now because we have young people that have no idea where their food comes from. They just go to the grocery store, buy it. And, and just don't even realize, you know, what it takes to make that. And so we do grind corn here, even though they, they did not grow corn, they, they did trade for it. And so when the kids come, we have them grind corn and we put a cup out there like, okay, we're gonna make, you know, corn muffins. How much grinding is it gonna take, you know, to make, you know, grind the corn? And the kids realize like, wow, this is a lot of work. You know, it takes a long time to do that. So that's another activity. Again, if they have time, um, we, we roll that in, um, in into their, their tour here. And I think it's just a great lesson for us all to be reminded of. We're, we're such an instant um, community now that we, we just want everything right now. And, um, you know, they, they respect time that, you know, things take time, um, things will happen at their own rate. And I think we've unfortunately lost some of that in today's world. So, uh, you know, I think it's just really, um, a great thing that they, 
you know, we can bring into the garden. Uh, before we even start a tour with kids, we ask them like, you know, what rules should we have for the garden, you know, and, you know, and they'll raise their little hands and, you know, stay on the path or, you know, oh, don't pick the plants. I was like, exactly. They would thank the plants before they pick them. They might even leave a gift um, for the plants giving to them. They might leave uh, tobacco or cornmeal or something to that effect. Um, so it's just, um, you know, teaching this generation that, um, it, it's good to have respect. It's good to think about sustainability. Um, we just don't pick. And then also just bringing in, you know, you want to know what you're doing before you do it. You don't want to make yourself or somebody else sick if you pick something at the wrong time or the wrong part. Um, we always say, you know, we're teaching history here. We're not necessarily teaching you how to go do it. So you're teaching living history and placing them back in a time that really makes them think about, well, they didn't have the conveniences we have today and they had to figure out every little thing that they did. And sometimes things failed. Yes. Yes. And it's not to say the things that we do today, we try things and they, not everything succeeds, but it's the same, but it's, you know, it's more advanced now. And I, I don't think that a lot of people know with, you know, when I worked for the Oneidas, you know, yes, they paid a lot of respect to the plants. They would even uh, ask the plants before picking them, not uh, just thanking them, but asking, you know, who would want to sacrifice themselves today? And they would ask that of the animals before they hunt it as well. Right. Yeah. And you use the whole animal, you know, you don't, you don't waste. Um, and I think that's another good lesson for today's living because, uh, you know, we didn't eat all that. We'll throw it away or we, you know, um, and then my family, we, we try to practice that, that we, we're, we're hunters and campers and fishermen and, and um, try to use as, as much of anything that we take as possible. So there's no waste. And, and so that's why, like, I think they've found so many different uses for different things was they, they were, you know, using the entirety, um, not, not just using, you know, something and letting something go to waste. That is, that is so, so neat. That's great. Great to hear because today, you know, we have, a, you know, the luxury or the idea of the luxury that we can sort of take it for granted, but we really shouldn't take it for granted at all. Right. Yeah. No, totally agree. Um, do we want to talk about some of the structures at the? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I mentioned the wiki up. Um, and so that um, once the Nugon, the TP came about, that really became sort of the, the hunting camp. And uh, so the, the men of the tribe would go out and hunt and they would, would build the wiki ups. And then they believe in letting things go back to nature. So sometimes you, you might be out in the forest and you could potentially find, you know, some logs, you know, leaning up against each other or, you know, some maybe going in disarray, but they, they believed in, you know, kind of letting them, them be there and maybe they'd come back and use it um, or, you know, it would just go back to the earth. And we have a scale model of, the, of a sweat lodge here. They didn't want to put a full scale one in. They didn't want 
people coming here and and using a sweat lodge. Um, but you know, we just talk about how that, that was used uh, for purification as well as ceremonial reasons. But um, our sweat lodge is kind of like a spider that's kind of creeping back into the earth. It's getting lower and lower, and they're like, "We will be back to rebuild that at some point," you know, on on their time. Um, but it's kind of going back to the earth, and when you know when they're ready, they'll rebuild it. Um, we have a ramada. It's it's um, kind of a, a half moon shape structure uh, with a bench and uh, covered with uh, uh, branches from um, different shrubs and you know like sage or willow or whatever was available. But it's kind of a shade area, and that's an area for gathering and telling stories. So. Um, sometimes towards the end of a tour, it's good to kind of gather the kids up and, and tell a story. And so um, we might tell a story about the coyote and, and I'm not good at, don't ask me to tell one because I can't, can't do it right off the top of my head. I do my book. Um, and some of my docents have gotten really good at telling the stories and uh, occasionally we'll do a bear dance too. And that was, um, you know, pairing the, the girls and the boys during the bear dance. So uh, and then we have a, a hearth. Um, we like to say it's kind. Of, it was kind of their crock pot, so it'd be something that they would put hot coals in and put food in. Um, they might cover it with leaves, depending on what it what it was that they were cooking, and then kind of go away, do something else, and come back, and then it would be cooked. And so that um, is made of of stones. Um, we've used kind of flagstones. It's dug into the earth. Um, you can almost think of like a Hawaiian pig roast would be sort of a similar idea where you're putting it in the ground and cooking it. Um, but just kind of like, a, you know, we, we say it's almost like a crock pot, you know, you put your stuff in there, you cook it and, um, you know, come back and eat it. So those are kind of the main structures that we have. Um, and we do have signage out there about um, just the there's one about their seasonal movement. There's one about different tools that they used. Um, there were certainly certain shrubs that uh, might have had hard, straighter stems that they would have used, you know, for arrow shafts or something to that effect. Um, but we have some signage out there for that. Uh, we have signage on some of the different life zones of the plants and about, especially about plants in the desert and how do they survive. Um, so we're trying to get more signage too. We've, uh, BLM has really been great about keeping us funded so we can do more for the future. So I'm actually in the process of writing a job description so we can have somebody really focus on this garden, kind of revitalize it a little bit over the years. Um, a lot of the grasses and the perennials have kind of um, faded away. Um, there's there's some shrubs that have done really well. <laughs> like we have the wolfberry, which people would know as goji berry. It's actually native over here. And uh, it is taking over the one mound. So um, our berm, um, the life zone there. So we need to do some some pruning and, you know, some other things. But, you know, any garden needs needs tending um, to, to keep it showing what you're, you know, going to want to show. So. Um, but but a lot of the shrubs and things have done really well. And um, the, the trees, we have a lot of pinion juniper. Um, pinion, of course, very, very long lived. And that would be where pine nuts come from. So we talked to the kids about, have you ever heard of pine nuts? And, you know, this is the pine that has the biggest seed. And so this is the one that they would have eaten. And that is still eaten uh, in today's day. So, um, yeah. Uh, other 
other than master gardeners and some of the other volunteers that you have in the garden when they help out and in activities do you allow them to mentor the children that visit or the families that visit you know do you allow them to mentor with some of the plants and and you know maybe some of the pruning or anything like that yeah they'll normally work together on pruning and i, I tend to like to be with them when they're pruning because we want to make sure we're not making it look like um, a landscape, right? It, it needs to look natural. So we have to be careful when we're pruning to, to make sure that we're, you know, that you can't really tell they've been pruned, that we're just kind of bringing things back to kind of keep them controlled. Um, they do mentor others uh, to be docents. Um, so, and we do have a, a master gardener mentoring program um, where, where when they're an apprentice, they, they get a mentor. So, and it's really kind of their interest. If they're interested in this garden, then they can get involved. We'll have a couple spring trainings. Um, and then they'll take turns depending on availability. We had over 400 kids come through this garden this year. We had that many groups. Um, so uh, Molly and I did quite a few of them. Um, a few of our master gardeners were traveling more this past year just because the, the COVID situation got better. So some of them weren't as available. So staff ended up doing quite a few of the tours. Um, I got good enough with my plants this year. I didn't even need my book. I, somebody was like, oh, we have some CSU interns coming. Can you give them a tour? I didn't even use my book. I just, at that point, it was in, in my head that I could do it. Um, but yeah, we had all kinds of groups, uh, anywhere from second grade through high school, um, even the local college, they have a group on uh, survival. So they came out and I kind of gave them a tour and then they actually did an activity um, that they had prepared in class. And so um, they had to kind of kind of show some survival techniques. So, you know, we get different requests for different reasons. Some people want to know the youth history. Um, and, and what they're doing. Sometimes we use it more of a native garden and you know they really wanna use it more for conservation uh, programming. Um, so we kind of tailor the, you know, the, the talk to that pollinators. We, we sometimes will talk about pollinators um, and the sumac's pretty cool because uh, small mammals can actually pollinate that one. So I think chipmunks and, and mice can pollinate that one as well as regular flying insect pollinators. So we, we talk about that as well. Um, so yeah, they're really modified. I, I've had retirement homes come through. Um, we had a, a, a group um, of disabled people come through one group, and I'm trying to, I don't remember the group's name offhand, but um, luckily all of our gardens here, the, the pathways are pretty flat. Um, they're all compacted decomposed granite. So um, there's no problem getting through a, a stroller or a wheelchair or a walker or anything like that. They, they can, you know, navigate through that. So it's, it's really a garden that's open to all abilities. Um, and people, we do see a lot of people come through it. Uh, we have some cameras here, um, because it's a, you know, public space. And unfortunately every year we do tend to somewhere on the property have some kind of vandalism, which is really sad. But um, anyway, sometimes I look just to see like, you know, and you'll see sometimes families out there reading the signs and walking through the garden. And, and a lot of times the kids will 
you know, ask us on their tour, they're done with their class. Like, can I bring my family? It's like, definitely, yes. You, you can come bring your family and just walk through. Um, so hopefully by the end of next year, there'll be even more signage um, to even make it more of a walkable tour. Uh, but there's certainly plenty to look at even even now. So well, we do take the new gun down for winter though. It, it just, with the winds and everything else, it's just too too rough on the TP to leave it up year round. Right, right. That's great. You have a huge diversity coming through the garden. Yes, and, we, and we do. I, we say two to 90, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> all, all ages. That's great. When can people visit if they want to take their family? Anytime. Um, you know, during daylight hours, it's, it's, it's fully open here. It's, it's found at the Mesa County Fairgrounds. Uh, it's just south of uh, the city of Grand Junction uh, off of Highway 50. They can come in anytime. Um, our, our address is 2775 Highway 50. And um, it's right behind our office. So our office is located along a big, the big parking lot at the fairgrounds. And uh, it's, it's just, just behind there. And it's a couple acres. Um, but you don't have to, you know, it's up to you how far you want to walk. Um, we have, you know, an uh, Aspen area, a, which, which they struggle in the heat here. Uh, we have a shrubland, we have the pinion juniper, we have the desert. Um, and then we also have animal silhouettes. We wanted to represent the animals that had a relationship with the people and with the, with the plants. And so there are animal silhouettes. So we always, you know, try to get the kids to look for the animal silhouettes that are kind of hidden within the garden. So um, we have, you know, coyote and rabbit and um, lizard and, you know, and of course the animals had great meaning uh, to the Ute people too. So it's something else they can kind of uh, do like a scavenger hunt or something with. So Fascinating. With the BLM funding you, do you entertain private donations from folks if they, if they wanted to help support the garden? For sure. Yeah, we, we definitely could. Um, often what I need and it's, you know, nowadays it's so hard is to get the physical help. Um, I must need more that more than the monetary help um, is, you know, people that, that want to help maintain or install. Um, we want to expand and uh, the Ute have asked for like a harvesting garden um, to put certain plants in there um, as well as we would want to do more yucca there. Um, we don't want to keep picking the yucca that are in, you know, the desert areas. Um, we want them to look natural. So um, we have plans for several different plants to put on a harvesting garden as well as we wanted to represent a, a mountain garden um, a mountain area since they, you know, would go up to 10,000 feet here. Um, they go up on top of the Grand Mesa during the summertime. Um, so we were going to try some ponderosa pine and some other, you know, wild raspberry and things like that, um, which, which should hopefully make it here down in the valley. Um, but trying, just trying to get help to install irrigation, <laughs> um, or to do some earthwork or something like that is just, um, it, it's been hard. Um, you know, they either might sh not show up to give me a bid or um, they'll show up and then not give me a bid or, or give me a bid. I had one, I even accepted a bid and they didn't even show up. So I'm just having a heck of a time trying to hire landscapers and like, I have the money. I, I don't know what the problem is other than they're just all so busy. 
um, right now. It's, it seems like, um, and they're having trouble getting help. Um, so yeah, if, if anybody's out there that actually wants to help <laughs> install, install and create, um, that's, I think where we need the most help. Um, and we do get, um, the BLM will come out as well as the U.S. Forest Service and help us put up the new gone. It's kind of a nice coming together, you know, to, to raise, raise the teepee in the springtime. So, so we get a little bit of physical labor, uh, from them. And then, you know, even looking for things like I, um, I had to replace the shrubbery on the Ramada. Um, you know, things things age, and you need to replace things. And um, just trying to find a source of uh, of shrubs, I, I thought I'm like, I really need to call the compost facility and see if they have landscapers coming in that they could could send me a load down of you know shrubs that have been cut down so we can re-roof the Ramada. So yeah, so that's really been the, the hardest struggle is just the, the maintenance of it and, and giving that physical labor. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of interesting things that you need help with. And if anybody's interested, you know, can they contact you? Is, is some of this on your website? Yeah, so we we do have a Tri River area website. So it's tra.extension.colostate.edu. And then if you go to the uh, gardening and horticulture page, there is a section on um, there is a section on the youth learning garden. Okay. Um, yeah, so the, it just tells you generally about what is the garden. It does talk a little bit about uh, Clifford Duncan. Um, he also was a U.S. Army veteran, um, so he he did just a lot of amazing things. Was a leader in the Native American Church, so he can read more about Clifford. Um, what is ethnobotany? Uh, what to expect when you um, want to come for a visit? So if you want a formal visit, if you just want want to come and just walk around. Um, you need to call us at least two weeks ahead of time so we can make sure that we have uh, docents that can help you with a guided tour. But, um, you know, as, as I kind of mentioned, we do, you know, K through 12 classes, college classes, youth groups, scouts, uh, other adult groups. Um, I did a group over 50. Um, we have a, a really unique group here called New Dimensions. And if you're, uh, I think 50 or 55 and over, um, they offer classes and so they've they've started to come to us more for classes so one that we did in October was a tour of the Ute Garden and it's uh, they were very engaged and wanted to do a follow-up like okay so we have Mormon tea how do you actually make Mormon tea um, so they were thinking about too how could we make uh, the garden a little more interactive so um, but there's information there is a, a brochure that you can click on and get more information on this website um, as well as uh, information that you can get us um, a form uh, to actually schedule a tour. And then, as I mentioned, you can also come through and um, just walk through on your own. Uh, there's a little blurb about the, and then there's a little blurb about the history and a, and a few photos so you get to see um, what, what does the, the garden look like. So, um, yeah. Lots of lots of neat stuff for people to do. Lots to choose from. Yes. I, I, yes. Hope, I hope they stop by and visit. I hope they contact you. Yes, I I, I hope so too. Um, you know, next year we'll we'll start in spring. Look, getting a little cold now, and some of the plants have gone dormant, so it's it's not as good to come through in winter. I mean, certainly there's there's plants that have held leaves or evergreen um, that you can see, and the signage is year there year round, but. 
Um, today, the wind's howling. I don't know if you can hear it in the background, but a little windy to be out there today and cold. Um, so usually, you know, usually spring through fall is when we do the majority of the, the tours through the garden. Good, good to know. Is there reading material that you would recommend for those interested in learning more even before they come out to visit the garden? Yeah, so uh, Sally Crum was one of the people that kind of helped uh, with the garden. She was with the U.S. Forest Service, um, very instrumental in, in um, helping um, get this garden going. And um, she's, she's retired now, but um, she has a website. I think it's just sallycrumb.org or .com. And she has books. Her one is People of the Red Earth. I, I want to say that it's just a, a must read um, that you, you need to take a look at. Um, there's a new book, and I'm trying to find the title of that one right now. Um, Molly has read it. I have not read it yet. But she was really in, impressed. Um, and let me see if I can find it. We had it. It might even be listed. Um, might even be listed on our website. And I think you're right. I think it's HTTP uh, colon two forward slashes Sally dot com forward slash. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Yeah, resources. Molly put together a list of resources that are located online for us. And um, so there's um, planting a seed, the youth ethnobotany, a collaborative approach in applied anthropology. And so um, Sally Crum and uh, Betsy, who's the elder that we work with the most, um, is is uh, in that publication from 2012. Um, there is a Ute Indian tribe website um, that you can find online. Um, there is that ethnobotany project uh, that was done by BLM that you can search for online. And boy, I'm not finding the newest book that she had. Um, maybe I can send that, that that book to you and you, you could post that somewhere. But I know there was a new book and I just am not finding the title of that. Unfortunately, I did not write that one down. And, Be um, happy to do that for you. Yeah. It's um, yeah. But but it was a book by a gentleman. I think he talks a lot about the structures and, and history. And so it's pretty interesting. So all in, all important and good information to know and to pass on. Right. Yes. Well, yes, good, good to keep the history going. So especially since, like I said, most of it was was uh, language, you know, with them was spoken. So, um, yeah, it's good for us to to help to keep. And, you know, that's why we want to keep the garden going. So we have the history. Exactly. Exactly. So to anybody in the audience, contact Susan Carter and Susan, thank you today for joining me. Sure. Thank you for having me today. You're welcome. I want to give a big thank you to the audience for listening. And tune in next time with another discussion on a horticultural topic. <laughs>